That was beautiful, very beautiful. All of it's just marvelous. And Paul and every one of you involved in this student night presentation, testimonies and song and music and accompaniment, we thank you very, very much. Wouldn't you like to thank all of them? All of us do. Yeah. I mentioned this morning in the sermon the fact that uh, there's a well-known statement that man has three characters. The character or the spirit, the personality that he actually has. Number two, the character he thinks he has. And three, the character his friends think he has. But as we said this morning, there is a fourth. And the fourth is the character that God sees us potentially having if we allow him into our hearts and into our lives. That incredible potential, indescribable, incalculable potential. God in us, with all of his power, releasing that power through us. God within us, as Ruth Ann sang, with his love, releasing that love through us in servanthood to others. That's a thought to ponder on in 83. God in me, the hope of glory. Not just elevation to some glorious estate when the Lord returns or we go to be with him, but Christ in me and in you now, the hope of a glorious day and a glorious week and a glorious month. Christ in you and in me. That fourth possibility and what it will mean. Let's ponder that a minute. We all here and pastors and preachers and evangelists and teachers and authors and television people, everybody keeps telling us. And we keep hearing it. But often it goes in one spiritual ear and out the other. God loves us. God loves us. God loves us. And we hear that and we've heard it so much that we, maybe some of us have become satiated. Maybe we, uh, it, it, it rolls off of our spiritual back like water off of a duck's back. Ponder that a minute. We, you, I, all of us individually, the object of God's love. How do we know God loves us? How do we understand God loves us? We don't understand it. We don't begin to see it until we really get in touch with what Jesus did and said and was and is. That's why I urge you to concentrate your Bible reading in the Gospels. Study the prophets. Study the apostles. Study the Pentateuch, the first five books of the New Testament, but of the Old Testament, but concentrate on Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate of God's revelation. Therefore, begin with him and end with him. 
If he is the Alpha and Omega as he is, let him be the Alpha and the Omega of your concentrated prayer, Bible reading, and study. Concentrate on him because he is God's concentration on us. If you really want to know what God feels, look at Jesus. If you really want to know how God acts, begin with Jesus. If you really want to know how God relates to people, you begin and end with Jesus. All of these other words are inspired. All of these other insights are helpful. But the ultimate revelation of God is in Jesus Christ. In the person of Jesus Christ. You know, it may be the order that the, of the books in the, in the Bible that confuses some people. They begin to think maybe just by the placement of the books, what's most important, that which is at the beginning, and so we spend a lot of time discussing and some even arguing about creationism, and others think the most important is at the end, and so they concentrate upon the book of the Revelation and uh, all of the end-time prophecies that are subject to so many different interpretations, and the book not even believed to be inspired by some of the greatest Christians that ever lived, including Martin Luther, we have the idea that somehow because it's at the end that that's the most important. Listen, my friend, the most important is the meat in the sandwich right in the middle. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the revelation of God in this person, Jesus Christ. Concentrate on him. Interpret Paul through him because Paul is the practitioner, not a savior. Paul is a man endeavoring to live out this faith in the walk of everyday living. He's not a little Jesus. He's not our... He's not partially our Savior. He's a man struggling with this faith just like you and I are. And he was living out on paper the experiences that were his and communicating those to us for his help. But he's not our Savior. He is not our pattern. Jesus Christ is our Savior. And Jesus Christ is our pattern. Concentrate upon him. Interpret prophecy through him. Interpret prophets through him. Jesus Christ is the essence of God's revelation to us. He's primary. He's not an afterthought. He's not a P.S. He's the subject of the letter. Jesus Christ. In your imagination, interview Moses and hear him say, there's a greater leader than I. Listen to him. Interview Abraham. The man of faith, hear him say, there is one with greater faith than I. Listen to him. Isaiah, the great prophet, interview him and hear him say, there is one who has insights greater than I. Listen to him. Listen to him. Because he's God speaking in the flesh. He is God incarnate come to deal with us. And you know what he's come to say to you? He's come to say to you, as he did to three people that I just want to refer to tonight, a harlot, a beggar, and a moral man. The harlot, read about in the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Luke. The beggar in the tenth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. 
and the moral man, the third chapter of the Gospel of John. You know the most powerful statement in the world is God through Jesus Christ saying to you, I believe in you. More powerful than preachments, more powerful than threats, more powerful than the most impassioned plea is God in Christ saying to you, I believe in you. You can do it. The faith that Jesus Christ puts in you that if you and he together get in contact with one another, you can do all things in and through him. He believes in you. Look at his conversation with this harlot in the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Luke. This woman who came to Simon the Pharisee's house, where Jesus was ignored and deprived of the common courtesies normally given a guest, and he comes into the meal, and this woman comes in with a great crowd of people and stands around the circle outside the circle of the, of the uh, diners there. And then she on her knees beginning to weep, tears falling from her eyes upon the feet of Jesus. And with the long loosened hairs of her head, she begins to wipe his feet and to kiss them and then to pour ointment upon them. And Simon the Pharisee and all of the other guests there were just stunned by this encounter. For they knew who this woman was. They knew that she was a sinner. They knew that she was a harlot, a prostitute. And here a conversation, first non-verbally and then verbally, takes place between Simon and Jesus and then a non-verbal and then verbal conversation between Jesus and the woman. An incredible story. Read it. Seventh chapter of the Gospel of Luke, the last verses, beginning with the 36th verse. Some in, in amazing encounters. And then notice this. This woman and Jesus did not say a verbal word to one another in conversation. But after she had fallen at his feet, she was weeping, she was identifying herself with him, she was touching him, she was pouring ointment upon his feet. Simon said, Jesus says to Simon, you gave me no kiss, but this woman since I came in has not ceased to kiss my feet, my head with oil you did not anoint, but this woman has anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say to you, talking to Simon, about her, her sins, no minimizing those, no discounting those, serious as they were, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. They are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven the same loves little. And he said to her, first statement he has now made to her, that one he made about her, this one he makes to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were eating began to say inside themselves, who is this who forgives sins also? And then he said to the woman, here's the second statement, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Her faith to reach out and touch, her faith to identify herself with him, 
her face to ask by her actions for something in her heart that had meaning and purpose. But do you know what sent her off in peace? His faith in her. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. God loves you. You say, wait a minute. I don't fall into the category of the harlot. Oh, yes, we all do. We all do. We may not be a prostitute working one of the hotels or Houston or Commerce, but the definition of a prostitute is one who sells his or her abilities or name for an unworthy cause. Have you ever been unfaithful to what you knew was right? Have you ever been unfaithful to God? By not saying something? Have you ever, just a little bit, just one little corner of your life, or one little moment of your life, sold out? Nobody knew. Nobody saw it. No one sent you to the boss or to the principal's office or to jail or to the court. You just knew it. We've all been there. We've all been best than, less than our best. We have all betrayed our noblest dreams of our own lives. Known only to us. And confessed only to God. And that's as far as it needs to go. Let me underline that. That's as far as it needs to go. There's some things you don't tell to anybody but God. No one but God. Not in a seminar, not off on a retreat. Between you and God. That's okay. Because he's the only one who totally understands and who says you're forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's the only public conversation that took place between the two of them, and no more of the conversation needs to take place in anybody's public than that. It's between you and the Lord, deep inside. But if you've ever sold out that little corner of your heart, if you have ever compromised down deep in your own spirit, if you ever feel that in any degree you've ever been unfaithful to God, I've got great news for you from the lips of Jesus Christ himself, the ultimate revelation of God, 
recorded in the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Luke, your sins are forgiven. They are forgiven. They are forgiven. They are forgiven. You can go in peace. Michelangelo was in a marble quarry and saw a discarded piece of marble. Over at the side, ignored. He said, take that piece of marble to my studio. There's an angel imprisoned in it. And I'm going to set it free. That's gospel. That's good news for all of us who feel like we are discarded on one of the rock piles of life. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the master sculptor of human hearts and lives, comes and says, bring him to my party. There's another person imprisoned inside of him. There's another character imprisoned inside of him and I'm going to set it free. The 10th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, that marvelous story, I preached on it some months ago. I guess I've preached on it and around and about it a number of times. The beggar Bartimaeus just outside the city gates of uh, Jericho. Blind, no first name, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, sitting there begging. Jesus comes walking by and he hears the name on the lips of some of the crowd following and with a loud voice he cries, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. And the crowd tells him to be quiet. They tell him to shut up. Don't interrupt him. Who are you anyway? We are disappointed that he's even seen you. We try to get folks like you off the streets when an important personality comes to town. But the Bible says he cried just that much more. Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy upon me. You got to admire this blind man's persistency, don't you? What more do you have to lose? That he wasn't going to lose anyway. I mean, he was blind. He was broke. He didn't even have a first name. He was a nothing. And so he just let it all hang out. Jesus! Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped. He bring him here. Very significant and subtle statement in the scripture. It says he left his coat by the road and he made his way to Jesus. If you've ever been in Israel, even in the summer, you need a coat at night. If you're there in the winter, you'll freeze to death without it. But he was so caught up in the invitation that he left his old coat beside the road. He didn't realize it, but he was going to get a new robe, a new life, new sight. Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? In everyday parlance would be like, what can I do for you? How can I help you? Oh, that I might receive my sight. Okay. Receive your sight. Your faith 
has made you whole. There it is. Seeing is there if we'll only ask for it. Healing is there if we'll only reach out for it. It has already been provided. It's like the atmosphere all around us. Forgiveness is there like the atmosphere that surrounds us, but we've got to breathe to take it in. You can stand right out there in the middle of the most beautiful atmosphere in the world up in cool Colorado, and you can hold your breath till you die. And it's not because there's no atmosphere there. You have got to inhale it. You have got to accept it. It's that way with God's love. It is that way with God's forgiveness. You don't have to beg him to get it. It's already there. All you have to do is just inhale it. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Receive your sight. Your faith has made you whole. It's yours. He loves you. And he's already surrounded you with that love. He's already immersed you in that life. Accept it. He believes in you. He believes that you, recognizing his love for you, will respond to it. If he didn't believe you would respond, if you didn't believe you had the capacity to love him back, he would not have done all of this. But he believes that you and I, seeing the personification of love in him, will respond to it. Do it. Respond to it. And experience the faith that he has in you as well as the faith you'll have in him. It's a reciprocal experience that goes on forever. Harlot, beggar, and finally the moral man, our friend Nicodemus, third chapter of John, coming to Jesus by night. Nicodemus was a moral man. He was a civilized man. He was an educated man. He was a religious man. He was the American man, middle American man. He came to Jesus by night, not because he was afraid. I don't think he was afraid at all. In fact, he was a very courageous man. Later, he publicly defended Jesus in the Sanhedrin, as, as you will remember. I think he came to Jesus by night because that was the common, courteous way that gentlemen met and discussed philosophical and theological affairs in the evening. So I think Nicodemus had his secretary make an appointment with Jesus' secretary, who was Andrew, and set up the meeting. And they sat down and started business. Nicodemus was a very moral man who felt like that somehow, by philosophical exploration, he could figure it all out. He was the forerunner of Saul of Tarsus, the ultimate religionist. He feels if you can just get all of the pieces in their right place, if you can just figure out all of the doctrine, if you can just get God rationalized, you can get theolog theology logical. All you have to do is use your brain and see that it works. And then you start doing this. You start climbing up the rungs of the ladder. This one and this one and this one. And finally, you get to God. I believe people, you look at it in the scripture, more, the people who were the most religious had more difficulties accepting the grace of God than did the harlots and the beggars of the world. They are doers. 
They are people who are accustomed to accomplishing things. And then they come to salvation, and it runs so counter to their whole style of life, which is one of accomplishment, doing things and doing them well, and competition, doing them better than anybody else, and you'll win. That's sort of part of our, the atmosphere that we grow up in. But when it comes to our salvation, that won't work. It doesn't work. We've got to recognize, we Nicodemuses, that basically we're harlots selling out for life or what we think is life. Basically, we're still beggars. We may be on Wall Street, but we're still begging. We're not begging for money. We're begging for life, for meaning, for purpose, for direction. Don't you see it? This blind man didn't need money. He needed eyes. The man outside the gate beautiful when Peter and John were going up to the temple to pray who was crippled, he didn't, he didn't need money. He needed legs. And we keep trying to get what we think will bring us happiness and the very thing we're trying to get keeps us from accepting the happiness that God wants to give us. We're beggars. We're prostitutes. We may go to church and we may know all the moral language and we may know all of the religious rigmarole, but we're beggars. We've got to admit that. We keep trying to do it ourselves. We'll, we'll never get it done. It won't work. That dog won't hunt. It won't work. Religious people have a hard time with grace. That's what I'm saying. And I've had a struggle with that much of my Christian life. I'm struggling with it right now. I hope you're struggling with it because the tendency to fall into legalism is ever-present with us, particularly those of us who have grown up thinking, do it, earn it. Nothing is free. And there's nothing you can do to get it except accept it. Accept it. So it's hard for us religionists. It was hard for Paul. That's why you're going to have some trouble if you spend too much time with Paul excluding Jesus from your theological diet. In fact, it's interesting to look at the language that the two use. You know, Jesus used the word sin only nine times. Six is a noun, three is a verb. Nine times. And in many instances, like with the woman at Simon's house, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more, he said to the wo woman taken in adultery. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. The only time he ever used sin in a judgmental way was to the religionists of his day, to the Pharisees, not to the harlots and the beggars, but to us, 20th century Nicodemuses. Nine times he used the word sin. Paul
Paul used it 91 times. See, he, he was struggling with that desire to justify himself and how do you come to the righteousness of God. So get to Paul because he wears our mental and spiritual clothing. We are where he was in varying degrees. But listen, my friend, begin and end with Jesus or you'll never understand Paul. And he's struggling with the sins of a righteous man and the sins of righteousness themselves. Self-induced righteousness. Self-expressed righteousness. Rather than the righteousness of God, which is in, as he came to see, Christ Jesus our Lord. Nicodemus. I believe in you. You can be born again. Mr. Good Guy. Mr. Go to Church Guy. Mr. Dress Up on Sunday Guy. Mr. Try to Do It Yourself Guy. I believe in you. You can have that fourth kind of character that Buckner's been trying to talk about. Not what you are or what you think you are or what other people think you are, but what I know to be imprisoned inside of you. I have come, Nicodemus, to birth you, to deliver you, to give you new life. So I think if we look in our hearts, maybe you'll find there as I look into mine a combination of those three people and many others. A harlot, a beggar, a moral man. I believe in him. He believes in me. We believe in each other and he makes life worth living. It's a gift. Enjoy it. Share it. Celebrate it. It's a great gift. Let's stand and bow our heads. Dear Lord, we are such a mixture of motives and desires we're such a combination of seeking and searching. Lord, we thank you that you understand us because we do not understand ourselves. We thank you that you love us when we do not love ourselves. We thank you, dear Lord, that you forgive us when we cannot forgive ourselves. Oh, God, we thank you for your initiative in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your expression of love in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your identification with us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for grace greater than our sin in Jesus Christ. We thank you for deliverance from legalism and from begging and from compromise and from selling ourselves out through Jesus Christ our Lord. Dear God, we thank you for what you have done and are doing in us and to us and for us and for the world through him. And, oh, God, help us in this 83, this new year you have given us to concentrate upon him. 
Help us to soak our minds in his mind, our hearts in his heart, our spirit in his spirit. May we be saturated by him. May his love permeate through us and give us his spirit. Use us as his servants, we pray. And use this invitation for any here tonight who would trust you as Lord and Savior, identify themselves with you publicly in this congregation, the desire to become a part of this church. Your invitation, which you're accustomed to giving from the dawn of time until the end of time through Jesus Christ to all who will to come. May the world hear your invitation and may all of us here tonight hear it and respond to it in new and deeper ways, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. And if your response 